This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think my experiences in government really impressed on me how important the U.S. economy and U.S. economic leadership around the world is. I mean, a big part of why countries have ties with us over our competitors is because of our strong U.S. economy. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. On September 22nd, Ambassador Kristen Silverberg, who is the President and Chief Operating Officer of the Business Roundtable and former U.S. government official during the George W. Bush administration, where she served in a variety of capacities, including as the United States Ambassador to the European Union, joined us for a conversation on the intersection between the business community and the international affairs world. It was a fascinating discussion because of the unique experience and perspective she brings to the discourse on international affairs. And especially now as she's working arguably at the heart of the business community in the United States at the Business Roundtable. Her insights were fascinating, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. To get us started, I'd love to learn more about you and your background. What inspired you to enter the world of international affairs? Well, Kathleen, first, thanks for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here and so honored to be part of this program. There are a lot of things, I think, that drew me to, to foreign affairs, but without a question, 9-11 was a big inspiration. I was a staff in the White House Chief of Staff's office at the time. And I think for me and for a lot of people my age, it was really a seminal moment in alerting us to the fact that we live in a dangerous, rough world. For people my age, we didn't experience the harrowing parts of the Cold War. We weren't alive for the Cuban Missile Crisis, don't have any memory of Vietnam. I remember the first Gulf War, obviously, but I didn't serve in the military. I didn't experience that with any personal risk. And so prior to 9-11, I think it was really possible to think that the world was a relatively peaceful place and that we didn't face any risks at home. And so I think it was a big, it was an experience of sort of waking me up to the fact that we have adversaries in the world and that we needed a strategy to confront them and also that we depend on our allies and we need a foreign policy that helps to nurture our alliances. It's so true. It, one of the reasons that 9-11 was so jarring is because during the 90s, there were these assumptions about globalization and order that things would be more stable. And, and I remember when I joined this field, I was thinking I'd be able to work myself out of a job. Security studies wasn't going to be needed anymore. So yeah, that's fascinating. So and, and without a question, I mean, that sense, I think, led us to let down our guard some. I mean, I it, obviously, it's been widely documented how unprepared the U.S. government as a whole was for 9-11 in terms of intel failures or failures in terms of our security procedures. But I had a personal experience with that as a White House staff. I remember how chaotic it was that day. My boss, Josh Bolton, you know, was taken down to the bunker with the vice president. And really that the bunker was, a you know, this old facility that was built for writing out a nuclear attack. Um, it really didn't have to do with the 
threat we were facing. There was lots of chaos in terms of what the White House staff was supposed to do. You know, we were taken down to the White House mess and then evacuated. And I remember going, another time we left the White House, it was sort of a ghost town outside and really eerie. We came back later that evening and then basically spent the next few months appreciating all of the gaps in our system that had to be closed. And we made a lot of progress in those months and the years to follow, setting up a new department and doing intel reform and creating new legal remedies. But we were really operating under the sense of collective shock. And so it struck me at that time how important it is for the U.S. to face risks, to have a clear-eyed vision about risks that are ahead and really confront them. That's a fascinating front row seat into history that you had. Of all of the roles that you've had, because you went on to do so much, what position do you look back on most fondly and why? I've loved a lot of my jobs, including the one I'm in now. But I really do think back on those White House jobs as a special privilege, in part because of 9-11, we really had a sense of common cause. There was a lot of mutual respect. Plenty of vigorous debates, too, but lots of mutual respect, um, including for the president and for his principles and character. And I had an experience with that as a very young staffer in the White House. I guess I was 30, and it was in the first few months of the administration. I didn't really know the president yet. And I came in early in the morning to edit a radio address. And I made some edits and then went to go sit in a meeting in the Roosevelt Room. I was sitting on the back and the door between the Roosevelt Room and the Oval Office opened, which was sort of unusual. And the president came in with the staff secretary right behind him, Harriet Myers. And he said he pulled up the original copy of the radio address and read it. And everybody in the room said, yep, that sounds great, Mr. President. And he looked over and said, she doesn't think so. And then, you know, and I was standing. And so I had to defend my edit. And we went back and forth multiple times. I had to explain why I thought it was so important that he say this thing in a particular way. And he finally said, okay, fine. And, you know, <laughs> kind of took my edit. Um, and it ended up really making our relationship. I mean, he appreciated that I told him exactly what I thought, that I didn't back down. And anyway, that was a great lesson in leadership and the importance of of being a leader who can who can have somebody disagree. Yeah. And authenticity and yeah. being able to, to yeah. represent your, your views. That's fascinating. As we mentioned earlier, you're now sitting at what is arguably the heart of the U.S. business community. How do you think your experience as an ambassador and in other foreign policy roles has shaped your work or your approach to your work with the Business Roundtable? I think my experiences in government really impressed on me how important the U.S. economy and U.S. economic leadership around the world is. I mean, a big part of why countries have ties with us over our competitors is because of our strong U.S. economy. And I think one thing we're very focused at Business Roundtable on is the fact that some of those ties are at risk. We're currently sitting out one of the most important trade agreements in the world, the CPTPP, which integrates 11 of the fastest growing economies in the Asian Pacific. And that has big economic costs. It means that our products are more expensive to these fast growing consumer markets. But it also means there's a big geopolitical risk because we've sent a signal to these countries in the region that we might be less committed um, to their future. And China's playing such an active role in that space for us to have created that vacuum. Yeah, yeah, no question. That leads to my next question. One thing that appears increasingly urgent, at least from my vantage point at CSIS, is the need to build a, a shared vision of the intersections and tensions between business and national security interests. 
I want to read a quote to you from the Secretary of NATO, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, who said at Davos, and quote, the war in Ukraine demonstrates how economic relations with authoritarian regimes can create vulnerabilities, over-reliance on the import of key commodities like energy, risks created by exporting advanced technologies like artificial intelligence, and weakened resilience caused by foreign control over critical infrastructure like 5G. Slightly differently, in a world where U.S. competitors like China often use economic coercion to achieve their objectives, how ought the U.S. strategy and business communities engage with each other to build a shared understanding of these strategic risks? Yeah, I mean, I think he's right that trade with authoritarian governments does create real risk. It could be risk of a conflict like we saw with Russia. It could be risk of a trade war. There are issues, other kinds of political risk. I mean, one thing that a lot of companies are struggling with is China's COVID zero strategy, which is shutting down manufacturing and creating challenges for supply chains and other things. And so I think one of the the real challenges is to think about how we have alternatives. I think Mm. I think many, many companies would like to have more diverse, more resilient supply chains But the reason that China plays the role that it does in in global supply chains is because it invested over many, many years in building these supply chain centers and hubs, and we're not going to have that overnight. And so the challenge, I think, for the U.S. is to make sure that companies have alternatives, that they can diversify their supply chains, but without creating a kind of sudden shock to the U.S. economy. So in your view... What other things do you think business leaders wish that the foreign policy and strategic communities in Washington better understood? I think there could be a better understanding of the important role that U.S. companies, that leading U.S. companies play in advancing our national security. That's obviously true of our defense companies, but it's true of our energy companies, of our manufacturing firms, of our you know banks and construction companies that compete for infrastructure projects around the world. It's true of our technology firms. Six of the top 10 leading global investors in quantum computing are are U.S. BRT companies. And how those companies do, whether they succeed and can compete globally, is going to make a big difference in who leads on that critical technology. The same is true of every other of artificial intelligence, of advanced nuclear designs, of climate technologies. I don't think there's a way to compete effectively with China without a really strong U.S. corporate sector that's supported by pro-growth, pro-competition policies here at home. But also, our companies touch people around the world in ways that our governments cannot or our military cannot. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, too, that our companies participate in, you know, they adhere to higher standards of corporate governance. They treat their people well. They follow rule of law. All of those things make them kind of important ambassadors for the vision that the U.S. has for the global economy as opposed to competing visions. When it comes to advancing American strategic competitiveness, what is your view on key areas or sectors we ought to be prioritizing? talked a little bit about uh, microchip production, supply chain resilience, artificial intelligence. Are there anything else from your perspective at the Business Roundtable that were key sectors that were missing that need to be part of this conversation? I think, you know, we're very focused on supply chain issues around semiconductors, around EV batteries, um, pharmaceutical ingredients, critical minerals is a focus. We are very supportive of Congress's action on the Chips and Science Act, which was the big federal investment in semiconductor manufacturing and research and development. I don't think that federal, it'll always be that the thing we always have to do is a big federal investment. I think there's lots of other things that 
the U.S. government could do. One is to make it easier for private sector companies to invest. So for many decades, a company could immediately expense an R&D investment. Um, and that expired this year. And so that's put us at a real disadvantage at a time with some competitors, including the Chinese, are really doubling down on supporting research and development. And so we'd like to see Congress re-implement the previous rule. And any other things that you think the U.S. government ought to be doing to advance innovation? No question. So there's lots of things like human capital is a kind of core criteria in maintaining our innovation. And I think that's a matter of first making sure we have world-class workforce development system that we're training people for job, you know, with the skills they need to participate in, you know, in advanced technologies and our current economy, but it's also making sure we have an immigration system that allows us to compete for the best and the brightest in the world. That's always been a big asset of the U.S., and that's really at risk. I think there are a lot of things like making sure that we keep our economy competitive broadly. That means a competitive tax system, competitive you know, regulations that are pro-innovation. So today, if you're a company that's innovating around a consumer product, you have to comply with this patchwork of privacy laws. So we think Congress passing one strong national privacy law would be a great thing in unleashing innovation in that area. It's so funny how so many issues come down to just organizing and streamlining the authorities and just making things a little bit more clear and transparent for how to do business, which I guess leads to my follow-up question, which is, do you think that the U.S. government is properly structured and prepared to win at this thing we call strategic competition? I think we have a lot of the components for successful competition. I think we do. We do have a skilled advanced workforce and a strong economy. We have the world's leading financial sector and all of the advantages of having the world's reserve currency. We have natural resources. So we have this incredible environment, the world's largest producer of natural gas. So yes, I think we have, a, and we have a robust private sector. I mean, maybe most important, we have an economic model that allows the private sector to really flourish and do the thing it does best, which is innovate. So I think we have all those things, but I think there are plenty of things we could do better. The things I mentioned around making sure we have you know, a workforce system that's helping people get relevant skills, particularly in this rapidly changing economy, immigration reform, keeping our tax and regulatory system competitive, and the trade, and the trade agenda, of course, that we discussed earlier. It was observed that Politics stops at the water's edge, implying that you know domestic political debates end when, when we talk about foreign policy and that our foreign policy is, is something that we have as, an, as a nation and, and that national security ought to transcend politics. From your vantage point in the business community, how is today's arguably deeply divisive political environment impacting our national security? I think it's perceived by our competitors to be a major weakness that we look really divided and distracted, easily distracted. And I think when you think about our domestic political debates, they're so narrow and so paltry compared to the debates worth really thinking about in terms of the future of the global system between the vision that we have in the U.S. and that we share with our allies about the you know global economy, political rights, all of those things, and competing systems. So I hope we can get back to the Point where we put our internal debates in context. And speaking of those challenges, what do you think Washington needs to do to prepare business leaders and the business community for what is arguably bumpy and getting bumpier international strategic environment? 
I think just more communication between strategy makers and business is really important. That's what we do at BRT. You know, we put CEOs in front of policymakers so that they can share their perspectives and really understand how members of Congress or cabinet leaders are thinking about these things. But I think that's really important because, as I said, the strength of the U.S. economy is going to be a critical component in our in our national security strategy. So I think that's that's an important conversation. I think you use the phrase American competitiveness starts at home. With this in mind, three years ago, the Business Roundtable issued a statement on the purpose of corporations. And it was re-signed last month. And it states that companies must work for all of their shareholders, which is broadly defined, includes investors, communities, and employees. A lot has happened in those three years, though. We've got disruptions from COVID, we've got the resignation wave, we've emergence of more hybrid work, changes and advances in family policy leave, and so on. So I'm wondering if you could share with us some examples of how these business leaders are thinking about how they're implementing this statement. Just as background, since its founding 50 years ago this year, BRT has periodically put out these principles of corporate governance that outline the responsibilities of boards and what the purpose purpose and responsibilities of a company are. And in the very early years, in the, the 80s and the early 90s, those statements talked about the importance of returning value to shareholders, of being a good investment. But they also talked about taking care of the other stakeholders of your workers and customers and suppliers. In 1997, though, BRT took a different tack and said, no, the principal purpose of a corporation is to make money for its shareholders. That language really gave rise to an impression that companies had stopped caring about their workers and customers, that they really only cared about the market. So in 2019, as you said, we went through a process to look at that statement. We interviewed corporate governance experts. We talked to our members and basically came to the conclusion that it didn't accurately describe the way they were trying to run their companies. All of our CEOs said, yes, of course, I want to have be profitable and return value to shareholders, but I need to also keep the trust and loyalty of my customers. I need to invest in my workers. I need to have a healthy relationship with my suppliers, including my small business suppliers. And they put out this statement that creates really tough choices. There are lots of times when a company is going to do something that's not in the short-term interest of the shareholders, but is really important for the long-term health of the company. And we saw that a lot during COVID. So companies that were Um, paying their small business suppliers early as a way to keep the small businesses afloat um, during a difficult time or giving extra bonuses, extra flexibility to their workers to help them manage this tricky period, Um, helping, you know, for giving customers longer to pay for some products. Um, And all of those things, I think the CEOs would say, yeah, they might not have been, they might not have been in our short term financial value, but they were really important to help keep us healthy over the long term. And so that's what the purpose of a corporation statement is about. How do you see these moves and that statement impacting American competitiveness in the global marketplace? I think it only can make our companies more competitive that what we're really talking about is their long-term health. That one problem with the U.S. economy is that, you know, the pressures on companies to manage for the short term, to look for short-term value. And one thing that we think companies need to do, and frankly, that the U.S., as a whole needs to do is start thinking about the long term. And so we think that, you know, managing our, more importantly, our CEOs think that managing this way is going to really help them 
succeed over the long term. Getting through short-termism is a perennial challenge. Yes, yes, everywhere. Especially with the news cycles being so rapid and and events moving so quickly, it's hard to take that that longer-term approach. Building on this notion of stakeholder value and, and, and broadly defined, I'd like to turn the conversation to gender and gender equity, if I could. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation argues that if current trends hold, we will not see meaningful gender equity until at least 2108. In your view, what things might businesses and government do to advance women in the workforce and in decision-making spaces? I think that certainly is true globally, that there are many places you and I both worked around some of them that are not making progress. I will say I'm very proud of the progress that U.S. companies are making in this. And at Business Roundtable, we really see that, you know, at the top. We are currently chaired by the first first woman chair of BRT, Mary Barra, who's the CEO of GM. We have amazing women on our board, Jane Frazier um, of City, who helps to support this program. Roz Brewer of Walgreens and many others. We have one member, Karen Lynch, who took over CVS, who made history. It's now the largest company in the Fortune 500 to be led by a woman. And, you know, I think today there are a lot of, we're in a tight labor market still. Every company has incentive to make sure that everybody in their company is flourishing and thriving and to really, um, really invest in, you know, people who have the skills and the work ethic to succeed. And so, I think that's going to continue to help move them in the right direction. We have some questions from our online audience. What was it like working with trailblazing women during your tenure in the President George W. Bush administration, like Condoleezza Rice? What wisdom can you imbue from that experience to our viewers at home? Well, you know, President Bush was surrounded by lots and lots of tough women. I mean, Dr. Rice, of course, but others as well. There was one point when I was in the White House, there are four policy councils in the White House um, doing economics, domestic policy, national security, and homeland security. And at one point in my tenure, there are three of them were led by women, which was really incredible. And of course, strong women like Karen Hughes at communications and throughout. So anyway, I feel like I absorbed some just incredible lessons from all of them. And of course, I followed Dr. Rice to the State Department when she moved over second term. And I think there are just a lot of things, just their work ethic, discipline, all of them had incredible moral compasses. Um, so I really, anyway, I'm, I'm so grateful I got to benefit from that. Another one from the audience. As a woman in business leadership, what advice do you have for women entering into these spaces? That's a great question. There are a lot of, lot of things that I did wrong in my career, but I will say one thing I did right is I always picked my bosses very thoughtfully. Um, and I, you know, I was always thinking about who's somebody who I would be happy to be associated with. So that's a big part of it. Who's somebody who's invested in my success, who really wants me to grow and improve and get better, who will give me honest feedback one way or the other, who's comfortable with my personality, which is opinionated. Um, anyway, I, I think being really thoughtful about who you surround yourself with is a big piece of advice. So true. The, the, the bosses that you have are just so yeah. critical. Who's, who's going to help push you forward? And one more, do you find yourself using the degrees you've gained, for example, your law degree, or do you find yourself more using your experiential, like on the job training? <laughs> I think early on, my law degree, even when I wasn't practicing law, was really helpful. I think the law degree gave, it gives you kind of a rigor in thinking and analysis that was really important. But the older I get, I think more I rely more on my experience that it's 
I use more judgment, more instinct probably than I did when I was younger. I think both. To wrap up today, because we're, we're getting close to the end of our, our conversation, we are smart women, smart power. And I'm wondering if you might share your views on the extent to which you're being a woman, in your view, has impacted the, the decisions that you've taken or the approaches that you've taken to the roles that you have. It's hard for me to say since I'm only, you know, I worked for lots of bosses, including male bosses who are very comfortable with strong women. I never felt like I was disadvantaged by that. But when I was in the government jobs, I was both a woman and a young, very young woman that I think stood out the most when I was in Brussels in the ambassadorial job. I had one young female counterpart from Georgia, but almost everybody else was a man in his um, 50s or 60s. And so I'm sure that made me work a little bit harder, probably be a little more diligent about proving myself. And that probably helped in the long run. Do you feel that being a woman in those positions, do you feel like you brought something different to the table relative to your male colleagues? Or in, and if not, why not? It's Again, it's hard for me to tell whether it was being female or being young, but I think I might have been more comfortable, you know, asking a different set of questions or looking at things a little bit differently or not maybe being so stuck on kind of the way that things had been done before. So I expect, but, you know, hard, hard to say. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for this fascinating conversation on the intersection between business community and international affairs. There's truly few people in the world who are as qualified to give us this perspective as you. So thank you so much for sharing your insights on all of these questions and your experience being a woman in these fields. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power speaker series is supported by City.